three times a year, we uh, as a church family have uh, sing till noon. And I wanted to remind you that today is, is one of those days. Normally our services go until 11.30 or 11.45, <clears throat> but we enjoy taking time uh, three times a year for the purpose of singing. And I, want, I say this because I want to encourage as many of you as possible, uh, if possible, to stick around today and to join us uh, in singing until noon. It brings me no small amount of joy to sing with the church family that I love so dearly. I know that not everyone will be able to stick around. Uh, perhaps you have prior commitments, but if at all possible, I want to throw in my, if you're on the fence, I want to throw in my encouragement in a particular direction to join us as we sing till noon following the message. All right, please turn with me to Luke chapter 5, <clears throat> Luke chapter 5, as we continue our series in the gospel according to Luke. This passage at the beginning of chapter 5 is of tremendous importance. It tells the story of the first disciples who followed Jesus. This was the day that their lives were changed forever by the power of Jesus Christ. And friends, I am here to say that lives are still being changed today because Jesus lives and continues his transforming work. Our title is Following Jesus. Luke chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. This is God's holy and authoritative word. On one occasion... While the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he, Jesus, was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. May God bless the preaching of his word. In J.R.R. Tolkien's story, The Hobbit, 
we are introduced to a hobbit of the Shire by the name of Bilbo Baggins. Tolkien says that the hobbits are people who love peace and quiet and good-tilled earth. Uh, The hobbits are people who do not love adventure. They do not love risk. They do not love change. One day, Bilbo is going about his normal routine when Gandalf shows up with a group of rowdy dwarves. And Gandalf calls Bilbo to leave behind all that he has known and loved. The safety and security he has known, friends and food, his cozy hobbit home, to leave it all behind in order to help reclaim the lonely mountain and defeat the dragon smog. And at first, if you know the story, Bilbo refuses. He says, we are plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. But Bilbo then learns that some things in life are more important than comfort and ease. And his mind is changed. And he then sets out on the adventure of a lifetime. Each one of us who are Christians has a similar moment in our lives. When Jesus calls us to follow him, he calls us to leave something behind. He calls us outside of our comfort zone, outside of ease, outside of even what may seem to be best to us, into something that is far greater, into something that is far more glorious. He calls us to himself, which is in fact the reason he created us to live for him, to follow him, to serve him as Lord. The beginning of Luke chapter 5 tells a powerful story of Simon, also known as Peter. This is an account of, of Peter, known as Simon, along with James and John, verse 10, and Andrew was there as well, we know from the account in Mark chapter 1. We're told here that the crowd was pressing in on Jesus. And on this occasion, they were pressing in, we're told, not to be healed, but to hear the word of God. That is the reason they were pressing in. In fact, we've seen throughout chapter 4 that the ministry of Jesus centered on teaching. He said in verse 43 of the previous chapter, I must preach the good news of the kingdom, for I was sent for this purpose. Here is a man who taught with so much authority, it was unlike anything that people had ever heard, that the people were pressing in, pressing in to hear the word of God. And friends, there is a lesson here for us. I hope each one of you have that same hunger for the word of God and for biblical teaching. It's not just that they went to church. They wanted to hear more of this word during the week reading the word, hearing the word. This was their passion. This was their hunger. Jesus, we long to hear the word of God, truth from the creator of heaven and earth. And so they pressed in to hear the word. Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, also known as the Sea of Galilee, There were men who had fished all night. These were uh, professional fishermen. Their livelihood depended on catching fish. Night was the best time to fish, but they had 
fished all night and had caught nothing. And so they decided to call it a night and they were cleaning their nets. Jesus gets into Simon Peter's boat and from there with his voice carrying across the water, he sat down and he taught the crowds the word of God. Here is what you must believe. Here is how you are to live. Here is the good news of the kingdom of God that I have come to proclaim to all humanity. Peter's boat becomes the pulpit of our Lord where he sits teaching the people. Jesus wraps up the teaching and then, and this has to be one of the best sermon closes ever, uh, catch fish till noon. He, he finishes teaching and he says to Peter, verse four, put your nets into the deep water for a catch. And so Jesus is not only teaching the word, he then takes over the boat and on that occasion works a glorious miracle that day on the lake. The text is not about fishing. It's not even about a miracle. It is mostly about discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? And there are several points in the text that reveal what it means to follow Jesus. And in each one of these points, God calls each one of us to this same response today. It's why we have this passage in his word. Because the response that we see here is the same thing that God calls every one of us to. We see, one, an act of trust, two, a humble confession, and three, a call to mission. So first, an act of trust. Jesus gives this command to put down the nets in verse four, and Peter has a response. He says, Master, we toiled all night and, and took nothing, and, and already we're washing the nets now, so this is not especially convenient. I, I appreciate the advice, Jesus. Uh, I know you're just trying to be helpful, but it doesn't really make any sense to put down the nets because we have already been doing that, and we've been doing that at night when fish are most likely to be caught. But then notice this, and this is, this is what faith looks like. It's, it's not that we don't have any ongoing questions. It's not that we don't have any ongoing wrestlings with what Jesus says. It's not that everything in God's word suddenly makes perfect sense to us. How could it when we are finite creatures? But faith means this. It means that we look at Jesus and that we say with Peter, but at your word, I will let down the nets. I will take Jesus at his word. Peter says, Jesus, this doesn't make sense to me, but you have been teaching with authority. You have been casting out demons, healing the sick. In my own house, we can imagine Peter thinking, you healed my mother-in-law of her dangerous fever. And so therefore he says, and this is faith. I trust you more than I trust my own understanding. Therefore, at your word, I will. That is essentially a definition of faith as 
biblically defined. Faith looks to God and says, and it says it not blindly, not irrationally, but based on the word of God, God's revelation of himself. Faith looks to God and says, at your word, I will. Jesus says, come to me and be saved from the judgment you deserve. We say with hearts of faith, at your word, I will. Jesus says, believe in me, come to me for rest. Trust in my authority in your life. And we say, at your word, I will. He says, pick up your cross and follow me. And in faith, we say, at your word, I will. Even when it's not convenient, even when I don't fully understand, because here is what we do know, that Jesus can be trusted. He is all-knowing. He is good and generous. He knows what he's doing. And so we say, with total surrender and with hearts full of trust, at your word, I will. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus. When I was around 16 years old, I was not living for the Lord. It was, in fact, a time I'd grown up in a Christian home, but during my teenage years, I rebelled against the Lord, and that was a time in my life when I was bored with God, when I was bored with the people of God. I loved the world. I was, in fact, in a serious relationship with Megan, who is now my wife, but at the time was not a Christian. I lied and hid that relationship from my parents, and when they found out, I refused to honor them. And they essentially said, Jared, we, we love you. We don't think this relationship is the path of wisdom. You are young and you are awakening love before it's time. Your girlfriend is not a Christian and you are not showing a concern for absolute purity. And I, I have to say, and I feel like I can still tap into my 16-year-old mind uh, at, at that time, the way that my parents thought about guy-girl relationships and dating made no sense whatsoever to my 16-year-old mind, and it especially did not resonate with my smitten 16-year-old heart. Um, but what did become clear to me, and it was over a year later, was that following Jesus would mean honoring my parents and choosing to just be friends with Megan. And so that conversation with Megan sitting on a curb by my parents' house that night was to this day one of the hardest conversations I have had in my life. But you know what? It, it was my moment and it, it, in a sense it was the first moment of saying to God, at your word, I will. At your word, I will. And, and God met me there in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania on that block, just as he met Peter on that boat, and just as he meets all who trust in him. It is an act of trust. Some of you might still be in the reluctant part of Peter's reply. Uh, perhaps you're not following Jesus at all, or perhaps you are a Christian, but there's some area of your life 
that is difficult for you to trust him? Where, where is it that you struggle to take Jesus at his word? Where are you perhaps currently struggling to take Jesus at his word? His word says, stay in your marriage. His word says, be content with what you have. His word says, don't neglect meeting together as is the habit of some. His word says, walk in purity. His word says, confess your sins and do not conceal them. His word says, love your enemies. We are called to listen to Jesus and to do what he says. And as we step out in faith, friends, God meets us there. When they did this, they caught so many fish that the nets were, were bursting. They signal for their partners to come and help. Then you have both boats full of fish and starting to sink. It is yet another miracle that shows the power and the wisdom of Jesus. And it leads then to confession and commissioning. We're not told exactly how the crisis in the boats was resolved, and that's because the real concern is not for the future of the boats, but for the future of the men who are on those boats. This leads to our second point. First, an act of trust. Second, a humble confession. A humble confession. Peter's reaction to this miracle in verse 8 is, is very striking. It is it is profound. It is not what we would expect. When he saw this big catch, the best fishing day of his life, what do we expect? Perhaps excitement, perhaps gratitude, perhaps joy. Rather, Peter is undone. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, apparently there among the fish, completely overwhelmed with a sense of his own sin, saying to Jesus, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. It is a humble confession. Now it could be that he was aware of some inward unbelief or a particular sin related to this incident, I think it's more likely that this is the response that humans always experience in the presence of majesty. Peter addresses him as Lord. Verse 9 explains the reaction in terms of the astonishment of this catch of fish. Here's the explanation. Peter recognizes this man to be no ordinary man, but to possess divine power. Who is this man? Who is this one? He is the Lord of the lake. He is the Lord of the fish. He is the Lord of all creation and all people. I wonder, have you seen him with the eyes of faith? Do you know him? This majestic Lord Jesus Christ. In Peter, here is a man like you and me going about his daily work and this day he encounters the glory of God's holiness, the glory of God's might, the, the goodness, 
the kindness, the holiness of the King of all creation who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, when we see him as he truly is, we are changed. In order to see ourselves rightly and to know ourselves rightly, we must first see and know Jesus for who he is. That's the only way to gain a right view of ourselves. The reason there is so much self-righteousness and arrogance in the world, the reason so many people look down on others and consider themselves superior is quite simply because they have never seen God and God in Christ for who he truly is. Because when we behold the king in all his beauty, when we behold the riches of glory that are in Christ Jesus, we can only consider the vast difference between the Son of God and ourselves, and we are left to cry out with Peter, I am a sinful man. This humble confession, and notice it's, this is a statement about who he is. It's not just, I've done a few bad things in my life, but overall, I'm a good person. Our deepest problem is not what we have done, it is who we are. Sinful men, sinful women, this is our nature. To be a Christian by definition is to know that we are unworthy sinners. It is to join Abraham in Genesis 18 when he interceded for Sodom and said, I am but dust and ashes. Jacob in Genesis 32 verse 10 says to the Lord, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. None of it. I'm not worthy of the least we declared earlier, your steadfast love endures forever. Friends, we are not worthy of the least of his steadfast love because of our many sins. When Job beheld the glory of the Lord, he says in Job 42, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. David said in Psalm 51 verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Isaiah, when he saw the Lord in the temple in all his glory, in Isaiah 6, said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips. The apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy 1, I am the foremost of sinners. That is the testimony of scripture. I am a sinful man. I am a sinful woman. Friends, have you made this humble confession? Not just once, but in an ongoing way. Throughout the entirety of our lives. It is, it is the hardest thing in the world to know ourselves as sinners and to see ourselves as truly deserving the judgment of a holy God and to cultivate a contrite spirit of genuine confession 
of genuine repentance, of a genuine awareness of our sin. We can't cultivate that apart from the Lord, apart from his activity in our hearts and in our lives. Our own, our own hearts resist it so strongly in our pride, in our defensiveness. We are ready to point out the wrongs in everyone in our lives except for ourselves. And our own culture resists this humble confession of sin as well. I debated whether or not to say this, but it needs to be said, and I serve on a team of pastors who uh, clean up any messes that I make in my preaching. <laughs> we are living in a day of the, the triumph of the therapeutic and the triumph of therapy. And part of what this means is gone is the biblical doctrine of sin, Gone is the language of sin and repentance and instead our culture talks about problems in terms of, of toxic environments, microaggressions, trauma, bias, gaslighting, self-actualization, and on and on. And I'm not dismissing all of that wholesale, but the problem, the problem is that the language of therapy has replaced the biblical language of sin. And, and we see this in current parenting trends. More and more parents are assuming the innate goodness of children, which I always just want to say, just give that a few years. Assuming the innate goodness of children, which then leads to an affirmation of their reactions, of their decisions, of their desires, and leads to a denial of the sinfulness of sin. And it removes biblical authority. It removes what Scripture calls the rod of discipline. Scripture says that folly is bound up in the heart of a child, and that needs to inform our approach to parenting if we are to truly be loving parents. There is a, there's a sense in which the entire goal of parenting is to lead our children to join Peter in saying, I am a sinner, and therefore I need a savior. I'm reminded of what J.C. Ryle says in his book, Holiness, and wanted to, to share this with you. It's just delightful on recovering the doctrine of sin. In his book, Holiness, the first chapter is on sin. And he says in order to, under, to gain right views of growth in holiness and in order to understand the Christian life at all, we must understand this doctrine of sin. He says this, the fairest child who has entered life this year and become the sunbeam of a family is not, as his mother perhaps fondly calls him, a little angel or a little innocent, but a little sinner. Alas, as that infant boy or girl lies smiling and crowing in its cradle, that little creature carries in its heart the seeds of every kind of wickedness. Only watch it carefully as it grows in stature and its mind develops, and you will soon detect in it an incessant tendency to that which is bad, and a backwardness to that which is good. You will see in it the buds and germs of deceit, evil temper, selfishness, self-will, obstinacy, greediness, envy, jealousy, passion, which if indulged and let alone will shoot up with painful rapidity. 
Who taught the child these things? Where did he learn them? The Bible alone can answer these questions. Of all the foolish things that parents say about their children, there is none worse than the common saying, my son has a good heart at bottom. He is not what he ought to be, but he has fallen into bad hands. Public schools are bad places. The tutors neglect the boys, yet he has a good heart at the bottom. The truth, Ryle says, unhappily, is diametrically the other way. The first cause of all sin lies in the natural corruption of the boy's own heart and not in public schools. That's J.C. Ryle, 1877, dropping timely and unpopular truth about sin. And it is enough, yes, to make you want to name your firstborn son Ryle. Um, The the whole problem of of sin, and yet follow this, here's the, the good news. It is when we clearly see our sin and know our sin that we are best positioned to go to Jesus. Peter, P- Peter was right to see and confess his sin, but it, wrong to conclude that Jesus ought to depart from him. You see that, depart from me? Too often when we see our sin, we think Jesus wants nothing to do with me. And we isolate ourselves in shame and despondency. We see just how sinful we are, and in that moment, the impulse is to push Jesus away. See, we will either be kept by Satan from seeing our sin or when we do come to see our sin, try to push God in his mercy away. God does not want any one of us to be more aware of our sin than we are aware of the superior grace and compassion of Jesus Christ, the friend of sinners. Be more aware of grace than you are of sin Charles Spurgeon says this, you cannot sin so much as God can forgive. If it comes to a pitched battle between sin and grace, you shall not be so bad as God shall be good. I will prove it to you. You can only sin as a man, but God can forgive as a God. You sin as a finite creature, but the Lord forgives as the infinite creator. His grace is greater than your sin. Jesus is full of mercy for sinners and he died upon that old rugged cross that sinners like you and me can be accepted by God so that sinners like you and me in fact can not only be accepted by God but can be used for the glory of God and for his purposes in the world. And that is why Jesus comforts Peter and invites him to share in his mission, and he does the same for us. And it leads to the third point, which is a call to mission. I just, I love this response of Jesus. I can imagine him there in that moment. In response to Peter's confession of sin, Peter's shattered self-image, Peter is devastated by the sight of his sin and look at the response of Jesus. In the face, he does the same in the face of our sin. In response to our sin, he is so merciful. He is so compassionate. He is so forgiving. First, verse 10, Jesus says to Simon Peter, 
do not be afraid. When Jesus says, do not be afraid, he is speaking comfort to Peter's troubled soul, and he is speaking comfort to our troubled souls today. He says, do not be afraid that your sins will drive me away. Do not be afraid, Christian, that your sin will be the last and final word spoken over your life. Do not be afraid that past failures will lead to ruin or will render you ineffective in life. You are not too sinful to be useful in the purposes of God. And every one of us needs to hear that because we are a sinful people, every one of us. The angry parent needs to hear this. The selfish spouse needs to hear this. The faltering and fearful evangelist needs to hear this. The pastor who too often succumbs to unbelief needs to hear this. God can use you and God will use you and he does so in spite of your sin. Daryl Bach says what Peter does not realize is that admitting one's inability and sin is the best prerequisite for service, since then one can depend on God. Peter's confession becomes his resume for service. First, comfort, do not be afraid. And then Jesus gives a promise. From now on, you will be catching men. That is, catching them alive and rescuing them from danger. So far is Jesus from departing from sinners that he forgives us and that he commissions us in his service and he promises that we will be useful in his purposes. And this, friends, is amazing grace. Not only forgiving grace to wash away all our sin, but commissioning grace to say, I'm going to use you in the lives of others. I'm going to use you as a parent. I'm going to use you in marriage. I'm going to be an instrument through which my purposes are accomplished. Forgiveness and commissioning because the Lord loves to use weak, sinful, imperfect people to carry out his purposes. When Jesus says you will be catching men, he specifically means you will be telling people about Jesus and you will be used to bring people to Jesus. You will go into the deep darkness of this world with the nets of the message of the gospel and you will cast those nets and you will bring lost souls to the shore of salvation. And you know what? Jesus says that to Peter and later Luke records in Acts chapter two this very thing, how Peter was used when he preaches on the day of Pentecost and the net is again bursting at the seams as thousands are saved. The disciples who left the boat that day became remarkable evangelists and apostles and church planters and missionaries to distant lands. But the promise is not for them alone. You, Christian, will be catching people. 
you and I, as the followers of Christ, will be active and fruitful in evangelism. It's not only true for Peter, it's true for us all. God is working through us, individually and collectively as a church, God is working through us to spread the message of salvation. Do you believe God is eager to use you in that work? Your conversations, your example, Do you believe he's eager to use you to influence others for Christ and to draw people to the Savior? And see, here's the thing. You and I are not responsible to catch the fish. You're responsible to put the nets overboard and to see what God does. And if you never put the net into the water, you're never gonna catch anything. And so here's an idea this year Let's cast the net deep and wide. It may be hospitality with unbelievers. It may be small steps of boldness or initiating conversation. Invite friends and family and coworkers to church. Share with them boldly what God has done in your life. Pray for open doors. Support ministries that share the good news of the gospel. Tell people everywhere. May we be a people who proclaim who tell of the one who died for sinners and rose that we might have eternal life with God forever. I want to invite the band to return as I close. Verse 11 ends by saying that when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. So this... We just read that and go, this is a, a complete change in vocation. They, they left everything, you know, and talk about going out on top, following what is probably the best catch of their careers. There is a sense in which following Jesus always requires leaving everything. I have decided to follow Jesus, no turning back, no turning back. Yes, there is a sacrifice. Yes, there is a cost. But friends, it is totally worth it. And to follow Jesus and to leave this world behind means that Jesus is now the center of our lives and that we no longer live for ourselves, but for him. It means that every one of us, it means that we say, I'm all in on Jesus. No more half-hearted following. I'm not gonna live with one foot in the world and one foot following Jesus. There is no passion that will be greater, no relationship that will be more important, no sin that will keep me from him, no sacrifice I will be unwilling to make. I will follow Jesus, my Lord and Savior, now and forever. Friends, resolve that nothing will stand in the way between you and total commitment to Christ. This passage gives us a a description of basic Christian discipleship a pursuit of Jesus and his word, the confession of our sins, speaking to others about Jesus, being willing to leave everything behind to follow him. And I'm telling you whatever, and I tell you on the authority of the word of God, whatever you sacrifice, whatever we leave behind to follow him will be worth it in the end. 
because Christ is worthy of our lives. Christ is worthy of our devotion. Christ is worthy of our all. Let's stand together and sing to the Lord.